Bookstuck with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Coming up on the show today, Megan Walsh, author of the new book, The Subplot, What China is Reading and Why It Matters. Uh, Megan, welcome to Bookstuck. Thank you so much for having me. Congratulations on the book. So why does it matter what China's reading? I, I think the main reason I really wanted to write the book was because when I mentioned Chinese literature to anybody, um, it's something that draws a bit of a blank. And I think I really understood why when uh, I, I sort of ended up having these sort of uh, cul-de-sac-like conversations. Um, I think most people assume that uh, things that are written within an authoritarian climate are generally paying lip service to the Chinese government and, um, and aren't really worth reading. And I have just, you know, in the sort of last 10 years or so of reading and exploring Chinese fiction have really discovered quite the contrary. And um, that what it does is really sort of reveal uh, a very alternative uh, pathway to understanding China, but also potentially a pathway for better understanding our own relationship with sort of culture and especially its relationship with politics here in the West. Yeah, I mean, you say draw a blank um, in the in the introduction. You point out that sometimes it, it's more than that; that it's very easy to be dismissive or sarcastic. That uh, that censorship, you say, can make foreign observers and readers snobby about Chinese literature. Uh, often, as you point out, with actually uh, without anybody actually having read any of it. Yeah, that's right. And I think it was something that I was guilty of when I first went to China, or when I first went to China, really as a as a journalist. Um, that I really wanted to speak to writers about censorship and uh, how they were navigating it or why they weren't challenging it more and why, why they weren't sort of standing up to um, uh, the state more, more um, sort of noticeably in their, in their work. And I remember the first time that I, I did that publicly, it was with three journalists in a sort of uh, a room where there were several of us. I just felt really so bad afterwards because... This is something that Chinese writers have been navigating for decades, you know, since the best part, best part of 80 years, really. And it just, I just had looks coming back to me, which were saying, like, we get it, we know, and we figured out ways of making peace with it or challenging it or sublimating it or poking fun at it in our own way. And the landscape of Chinese fiction now really sort of shows the, the myriad ways that people have learned to live with it. And you, you do show how the, the, uh, the impact of the state is very direct. That, uh, for example, you quote uh, President uh, Xi uh, saying that poetry and literature need to take patriotism as their muse. This is something, as you just pointed out there, that stretches all the way back to Mao. It does. And I think it's, it's something which um, I guess writers have had to, you know... Um, live with in various different ways. I mean, in the 30s, I think literature had a very different burden to carry. It was to do with reforming the nation. It was to do with um, modernizing China. And in a way, there was a, there's always been great reverence for the ability of literature to sort of capture the hearts and minds of people and, and guide them towards um, a better future. Uh, and obviously, authoritarian leaders sort of are aware of that too. And so they, they also want to make sure that... Um, the stories generally reflect their own playbook, which is, you know, um, sort of national and uh, collective memories as opposed to individual ones. And, you know, fiction generally, whether it's writing about vast, or, you know, big cast, which is very common in Chinese literature, uh, it still is about individuals processing individual experiences. And, and that's what 
poses the challenge, I think, in the minds of the state. Because it has to meet what uh, you describe or what uh, President Xi described as the correct view uh, of history and culture. Yeah, and uh, we all know that that's a, a pretty difficult thing to do. Um, and obviously their version of events um, doesn't really tally with a lot of personal experiences. Um, and so what really is, is sort of fascinating about a lot of Chinese um, literature and, and by extension the arts is how they grapple with that sense of unreality, that there is a, an official script, there's an official history, there's the things that did and didn't happen. And then there's, you know, what people know between themselves, what people have experienced themselves and how they make sense of that uh, discordance, I guess, and have done so for, for decades. And there can be, I mean, significant hostility. I mean, you use the example of Moyen, the Nobel Prize winner in literature in 2012, who, you know, that decision, that award uh, became mired in controversy, even uh, someone like Salman Rushdie, who himself is no stranger to political uh, controversy, denounced him as a, as a patsy of the Chinese Communist Party. Well, that's right. And I think, you know, the, the Moyen controversy was a very interesting one in that, you know, that obviously the, the Chinese government celebrated the fact that finally a, a Chinese writer had been acknowledged. And as you say, uh, the likes of Rushdie and, and others denounced him for being uh, a collaborator. And, and in many ways he is, you know, he is a member of the Chinese Communist Party. He's was a propaganda writer um, as a young man, and he's copied out various scripts from, from Mao's era. But his fiction tells a very different story. And uh, I think most people who have read Moyen and, uh, and sort of have engaged with his work know that there's a huge difference between the writer and the writing. And that's a, a kind of existential state that a lot of Chinese writers have learned to kind of play with, really. It's a, it's a sort of trade-off, um, but it makes for a very interesting one. <laughs> And, and, and how does that fit into this idea of blue skies, that uh, the way in which uh, you describe the, the literal and figurative message that uh, is the story that China wants to tell about itself and wants its writers to tell? Well, I think it's very easy to see um, how blue sky narratives work in, in film, much more than it is in, in literature, in that you know, film is much more sort of amenable to... Uh, you know, to being a sort of action movie, basically, and, and, and peddling sort of uh, big themes and heroic gestures. Whereas I think what most people find, even when they try to write patriotic fiction, there's, uh, it's very difficult because it's not really what the artistic process lends itself to. Um, so it's quite a famous case of a, a poet trying to write patriotic poetry at the time of the uh, 2008 Olympics. And he sort of ill-advisedly decided to say that the people who had died during the Sichuan earthquake just months before would be proud, happy ghosts watching um, you know, China march to victory. And, you know, I think the government and people sort of realised he'd overstepped the mark. And But, you know, in a way, you sort of feel sorry for him because he was sort of, it's, it's the sort of the nature of how that kind of intrusive uh, reader works really in, in the minds of what he, he was trying to impress the, you know, the right people and uh, failed miserably. And, and I think that's kind of what happens to everybody in the end. I mean, I, I suppose that example does, uh, does show that, I mean, do, do we have unrealistic expectations for Chinese writers living within a communist state, do you think? I, I think we do in, in terms of what, what we, you know, 
I think I, I sort of mentioned this in the book, but the, the sort of being banned in China is kind of a baseline for what we're willing to engage with. And I think what we miss... If, it, if it's not banned, it's not worth reading, I think you say at one point. Yes, exactly. And I... And, you know, that's how I got into Chinese fiction. I love reading these sort of brave dissident writers, but I also think it's not really a way of engaging what it's like to, to live in China and having spent a lot of time there. You know, this is a, a wildly eccentric and wonderful place that can't in any way be reduced to some kind of monolithic narrative that either, you know, the Chinese government likes to pull together um about the nation and this in the same way that we in the West tend to sort of only really engage with it through politics or economics or human rights issues. What, what you have with, um, you know, it, with literature, I guess, is like people processing the myriad ways uh, they experience what it's like to live in an authoritarian climate. I think that's sort of what it sort of elevates above all other things. Yeah, I was I was particularly interested in in the the, the use of the word realpolitik uh, that you used to describe what um, how many writers in China engage uh, with uh, with the state and and the way in which their writing is able to navigate those difficulties. That's a that's a, a really interestingly political word for uh, for writers of fiction. Yeah, and I think it's something which perhaps we are. Um starting to perhaps understand a little bit more ourselves and in, in now that in, in the sort of post-truth world we are trying to make sense of the fact that we're not reading from the same page and I think the real politic of uh, being an artist or a writer in China has been one where it's a sort of mixture of compromise and pragmatism and being incredibly inventive so for example even like the use of metaphor it's something which you know the Chinese government sort of expects of their writers, their sport, their sportsmen and women. Um, they want everybody to be a representative of the state, and so you have Chinese writers just figuring out really, really interesting I, and sort of overt or um, sort of strangely sublimated ways of using metaphor to poke fun at the fact that they are expected to act as a metaphor themselves. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's not the the subject of the book, but I, I was struck as I as I was reading that there are parallels with the with the Soviet Union uh, during the Cold War and thinking about, for example, composers like like Shostakovich who had to tread that fine line between resistance and existence. So, you know, to to some way, the, in some ways, the story that you're telling uh, is a universal one about artists living under uh, authoritarian or totalitarian regimes. Well, that's right. And I think even, um, you know, thinking back to Russia, I remember reading Edmund Wilson on Chekhov and, and he made a lovely point, which was that uh, he believed that the sort of restrained brilliance of Chekhov really originated from um, Pushkin, who had been working under great censorship under the Tsar at the time. And so Pushkin had sort of developed this, this sort of uh, very kind of pared back spare way of writing, which then Chekhov inherited himself. And I, I, I think the ways that various writers, the best ones, um, have learned to navigate these um, parameters, I guess, um, have produced some of the greatest fiction there is. Um, it's just it also is utterly crippling for the people who don't manage to do that. And it produces some of the worst. And um, people tend to kind of uh, want to just focus on what's bad rather than what is good, I guess. Yeah, and again, I mean, that seems to me to be one of the the real themes of the book that 
you know, you talk about this mixture of invention and humanity and bravery, but at the same time, there's also that kind of soul-crushing submission and pragmatism. So, you know, it's it's actually a very nuanced, complicated story and existence for those who are actually living it. That's right. I mean, I think one of the the hardest thing has been things has been for young writers who have been told not really to write about themselves, um, but they have no experience of sort of communal living that their parents had or their grandparents had. And just even trying to figure out what to write and what how to write about being young, how to write about being young in the city um, has been an immense challenge for them. And, you know, a lot of it's ended up being pretty terrible. But the, in particular, the um, the explosion of online fiction, which has actually sort of given us a model of what the, if the free market was to be sort of you know left alone and and um that was the only sort of rules that you had for for writing china is has provided it and uh, there's millions and millions of titles of fiction that's being churned out because there's been no model really for uh how to write something differently it's it's interesting as well that I mean just how important uh, writers seem to be for the Chinese state and also for President Xi personally. That I mean we talked earlier about you know him addressing writers. That I mean it, it's 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 difficult to imagine say President Biden or President Trump uh, worrying as much about what fiction writers in the United States or Rishi Sunak worrying uh, about fiction writers in the UK in the way that President Xi does. Uh, in China, and and how much that these writers are in the kind of the vanguard of that that idea of the so-called China dream and so on. So, I mean, th- this this really seems to be a central issue in China in a way that perhaps it isn't in the West. Yes, I mean, I I think there is there is some truth to that in that you know, Xi Jinping sees himself as a bibliophile and. Um, he publishes his reading list every year and it becomes a huge news story. And I, I think it sort of ties into, like I said before, this idea that literature has always carried a very heavy burden really in the last hundred years in China to deliver some kind of social function, um, you know, be it on the left or these days and, you know, under sort of market conditions. But I think writers also sort of suffer from this sort of slightly ironic freedom these days because of tablets and uh, smartphones and movies and computer games that they actually aren't as important anymore people aren't really reading in the same way so it's become one of the sort of safest spaces really to explore difficult ideas in the way that you just can't in art or um, film that's that's much too regulated but there's a sort of regulatory loophole with a lot of fiction especially online and that is only now being really, really uh, cracked down on the sort of this huge, huge industry of online fiction is finally being um, reined in and being told that it has to submit to socialist ratings and um, uh, eliminate most most topics that people want to write about. But that's only happened in the last two or three years, I would say. Yeah, you you describe this as a, as a new ice age for Chinese writers. And I guess that you know, the pandemic, the 100th anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party, the, these seem to have created a particularly bleak environment recently. Yeah, I think COVID was a huge turning point. Um, there was, and, and also for me, when I started writing this book, there was this sense of 
stability in China and things were, I guess, it felt like whatever it was that Xi Jinping was doing really was working and people were sort of getting on board with his master narrative in many ways. And then COVID struck and it, it opened up all these sort of fractures again that citizen journalists were writing about, poets were writing about these very draconian lockdowns and once again sort of scared, I think, the state. So they started shutting down um, what people were writing online or publicly and that really hasn't gone away. It's just got worse and worse. It's sort of, it's mirrored in the sort of zero COVID policy. They seem to have that also for ways in which people kind of question um, the role of the state in relation to most things these days. And and presumably that applies to issues like the terrible situation with the Uyghurs too, that that these are uh, just issues that uh, cannot be written about or discussed through any any kind of writing, including fiction. That's right. I mean, I think for most Uyghur writers, um, their their work has has vanished. Really, there's a there's a place in Turkey that's trying to um, store all of the books just so that they don't really get forgotten. I mean, I think that it's seen as unpatriotic to write in Uyghur and not in Chinese. Hence, all of these so-called re-education camps. Um, and certainly, I think for most Chinese people, they don't even really have access to information about it, apart from, you know, uh, reminders that um, some Xinjiang separatists carried out, you know, a, a horrible terrorist attack in, in a train station and, and things like that. Um, so in a way, they just don't really know what, what, what it is that's even sort of being talked about. And, uh, you know, I suppose it's of her who wrote her poetry, had her friends commit it to memory, then burnt it, uh, hoping that she'd be able to reconstruct it many years later, which of course she did. I mean, do, 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 it's, do we think that that kind of thing is going on in China, that uh, that kind of tradition? I think in places uh, like Tibet and, and Xinjiang, where people are trying to preserve their, their ethnic language and um, and sort of cultural identity, then that is certainly the case. They are definitely trying to do things like that uh, at great risk. You know, a lot of these poets are in, in jail and things. Um, but also there's a, a novelist called Yen Yen Ke who has been calling for, you know, young people to, you know, write truth as fiction, really, because he, he says it's the only way of um, keeping alive the memory of things that are just being very strategically eliminated within the sort of public realm or, you know, e or, or sort of online. and he believes that fiction is, uh, you know, the one safe place that people can keep exploring ideas that just have no platform whatsoever elsewhere. And so I think that may well happen. And I think people may use it in particular as a way to just sort of keep, keep record of things that have been happening, people's experiences in the way that they just can't anywhere else. Yeah, I, I, I was very struck by that, that idea of writing fact as fiction. And, and, and you show how really this, this is a response to the way in which the pandemic, for example, created this very hostile situation for nonfiction writers, journalists, those, those activist writers, the flash poets that, uh, that you talk about. That This, this is, a, is an illustration, actually, of how fiction writers uh, can be incredibly inventive have to be quick on their feet, have to adapt to the circumstances uh, working within uh, a, a state like China. That's right. I mean, I think on this topic, I mean, the Enyanka was writing about some AIDS villages back in the 1990s, and he wanted that to be a sort of nonfiction piece. And 
realized that he had to really put it in into a novel. But I think also the beauty of literature really is that that you sort of realize that um, it, it sort of works to a different time frame in some way, and that uh, while everything else, all the other stuff that we're used to, the news cycles are so reactive and so, I guess, sort of instant. The one thing that literature keeps proving is that um, these themes keep returning. So there was a wonderful book by Yu Hua called To Live, which has been banned, you know, for for decades really, and now it's right at the top of the charts because it's sort of no longer seen as um, too subversive. But those ideas didn't die as a result. Whereas I think with other, you know, other things, it just sort of they, they don't have the same kind of um, lifespan. I don't think. And uh, finally, Megan, for for maybe listeners who haven't read any uh, Chinese fiction, what is the best book to start with? And what do you think is the best example of Chinese fiction? I guess I would, I personally would recommend, a, it's called The Four Books by Yen Lian Ker. And he, he really tries to explore what it's like to write within, it's, it's set within a, in a re-education camp uh, during the 1950s. But he uses four different viewpoints to really interrogate the nature of truth and, and storytelling in, in a really brilliant way. And I, I won't say any, anything more than that, but that, that's had a sort of profound impact on me, I, w- I would say. Um, any Yu Hua is, is always worth reading. He's, he's quite a sort of cheeky writer as well as a, a really kind of humane. And, and, and one he, I think the, I mentioned To Live is probably the best one to start with. And actually any of his short stories, I would, I would point people in the direction of. And I'd also recommend, and I've done this in a couple of other places, but um, there's a book of migrant worker poetry, and I would highly recommend people checking that out. It's called Iron Moon. And um, there's a really, really interesting uh, sort of working class movement in, in China of young poets sort of sublimating their hardships into lines of poetry. And I would, I would definitely recommend that. And also Chinese sci-fi is pretty interesting at the moment. So the book is The Subplot, What China is Reading and Why It Matters. It's written by my guest, Megan Walsh, and published by Columbia Global Reports. Uh, but for now, Megan, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thanks for having me. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Laura Silverman and Demir Marusik. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying... Thanks for listening.